Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Hi, folks. This is the Am I Called podcast, and I'm your host, Dave Harvey. Most Christian leaders know the name of John Piper. In fact, I can remember where I was sitting when I first read my first Piper book, and I thought, man, I want to love God like this man loves God. I want to know God in the same way that he does. He's had that effect on many, many people for many, many years. Today's guest has dedicated the last 20 years to helping people have that experience through the books and messages of John Piper. John Bloom is the president of Desiring God Ministry. That's a ministry that he co-founded with John Piper back in 1994 to spread a pretty subversive idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. John's an author who recently published a devotional book on faith called Not By Sight. That's a devotional, by the way, that just lit up my devotions for about two months. He's, He's the pastor of worship in his local church. He's the husband to Pam and the father of five. John, it's great to have you here. Well, thanks, Dave. It's an honor to be with you. John, today most people think of Desiring God as this massive, top-notch, worldwide kind of ministry, but it wasn't always like that, was it? In fact, I remember visiting Bethlehem Baptist back in, I think it was the mid-90s, and I I think you and I met, or it was somebody who looked like you, and... (laughs) being told that there was this small ministry called Desiring God that was starting in the basement to distribute Piper materials. You know, why don't you take us back there and tell us how Desiring God began and and how it became what it is today? Yeah, well, you know, it's probably true that whatever people's conception is of Desiring God, if they think it's a massive, top-notch, worldwide ministry, um, they would... <laughs> they would be surprised at the they walk through our humble offices and see what we're actually like. Um, and I actually remember you coming through. I remember that group um, coming through, and uh, and yeah, we were we were right at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and this little this, we, we had a couple rooms in the basement of the church at the time. Um, That's so what I remember. Got... It gave it gave new definition to the word startup. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so so Desiring God began in 1984, and uh, like many things that God does, it started accidentally, kind of from a human standpoint, which means that we didn't we didn't have some grand strategic plan to launch this thing called Desiring God. So what, what happened was, um, I was working in the church. I was John Piper's ministry assistant. I can, we'll get into that a little bit later. And um, the elderly couple that were running the, the cassette tape ministry, so you can that's how far we've come along. <laughs> we were still doing cassette tapes back then. Oh, I was feeding off those tapes. Yeah, yeah, and, and Arnie and Olive Nelson were running the tape ministry. They had been doing it for 16 or more years, and they decided to retire. And so John Piper stuck his head into my office door and said, the uh, Nelsons have retired, and we got to keep the tape ministry going, so you just figure out how to do it. Just make it happen. And so uh, Desiring God 
evolved over a couple of days in my head. I mean, not what it is now, but in those early days. And I came back to John with an idea saying, what we need to do here is, is be a little more strategic about your, your resources. And uh, I mean, let's create this umbrella resource ministry out of the church. And um, John said, oh, that's a great idea. We can call it Desiring God Ministries after the title of his book. And so I walked out of his office. I don't know, that could have been a 20 minute meeting. I don't remember. I just remember walking out of his office thinking, okay, I gotta figure out how to start this thing. I never used a massive you know, mass tape duplicator or anything. I didn't know what I was doing. And uh, in fact, in fact, if, if what Desiring God was gonna become had been in anybody's mind at the time, I would have never gotten the job. I'd have never gotten the interview. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So all no, I can no, say, why do you why do you say that, John? Well, <laughs> because I because at the time, I mean, I wouldn't have had any any anything to qualify me for that. I mean, I, I didn't have any business background. Um, I was, uh, and I'll, I'll get a little bit more into that a little bit later in the story here. Well, but, you um, can't keep hanging out these teasers and then leaving them up in the air. We're yeah, okay. Well, so so here here I was. I I got my my degree, my undergraduate degree, as in anthropology. So that qualifies me to do very little to begin with. Um, I didn't have any advanced theological degree. I still don't. I, I was planning to go to seminary. I was working with John and Desiring God happened. That ended up being my, my long-term theological degree. But, but nobody would have thought, oh, here's the guy who ought to start it. I, I, from the qualifications that I brought to the table, um, nobody look, looked at my resume and would have said, Hey, that's the guy for the job. They would have said, um, "I'm not sure why you're interviewing for this position, but uh, you know, maybe you ought to get some schooling, or maybe you ought to get some training." That's <laughs> that's what I mean. And so what happened was, um, I just be began to do the next thing. What, what do you do to start? Well, you start asking questions, and and uh, God was very good to me and to all of us. So we just started sending volunteers, he started sending the right people, and uh, Desiring God grew more or less organically. Uh, we, were, we were, in those days, largely responding to demands, people wanting John's stuff. And then over time, we also had to respond to the changes in technology. So um, when you ask how to become what it is today, so, uh, looking back, I can say that uh, Desiring God roughly went through four different phases. We began as this, this mail order store for, for John's resources that had this policy, this whatever you can afford policy that we, we borrowed from Keith Green. We love that. And, uh, and so that's what, that's what it began as. People could mail to us and we'd send them what they want and they, we, they could pay us whatever they could afford. If it was nothing, nothing, it was half the price, half the price. If they could pay a little bit more, which some did, they could do that. The second phase we call, I would call RadioNet. That's the name of a strategy that we came out on. So we started thinking more strategically over the, after, after being going for a few years, how can we branch out and reach uh, more people wanted to hear John. We started thinking um, about radio, radio networks had been approaching us saying, would you produce a program? And so we began to think about that. So, John, who, who was the think tank that was sitting down pondering the possibilities? Is that, is that you and John Piper? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not quite so simple. We had a small team by then. We were bouncing ideas off each other. But largely it was that. I mean, it was, it was uh, 
I'd bring an idea to John and we'd bounce it around. And, and uh, John brought, we were talking about this, John went home and he wrote this little paper called RadioNet, which, which, which was real helpful to us because it gave us um, his conception of how he, he might be able to do a radio program. And we could, we could use both radio and the internet as two branches to try to reach out to people and, and advance the, the mission. And so that's where he came up with that term. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a real dynamic process. Um, I would come up with certain things, John would come up with others, and uh, some of the other team members sometimes would come up with another great idea and we'd run with it. So John Piper sounds like he has something of a, of a tech side. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I would say that, that um, John has always been, since I've known him, He's, he's kept up with technology. So he was using computers, uh, you know, in the early 80s, early to mid 80s, he was already moving towards computers and he was, um, he was interested in the internet as it was beginning to emerge. He was tracking with it. He, he, John is one of these folks who pretty quickly sees trajectories. Um, he sees them theologically. He can see them technologically. Um, so he's, he's real sharp in that way. So he keeps track of those sorts of things. He's always kept right up with, with technology. He's a bit of a, he, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't call himself a techie, but he stays aware and he understands the strategic importance of them for the sake of the gospel. Mm. So I was, you were walking through yep. the developments of Desiring God. I interrupted you, but I want to get back to that because I think this is fascinating. Yeah, so we, so we, we launched into that early, early 2000s. We launched into RadioNet. We started a radio program and it went on, uh, you know, a few hundred radio stations around the country, and we we made our, our website much more robust. And um, it didn't it didn't really take us very long before we, we realized, you know, we're we're set up well for the internet. Radio is a fading technology as far as long form radio teaching programs go. We could we 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 got on right as things were beginning to tail off. Um, and we also saw that, that in terms of the way that we wanted to do fundraising and things like that, radio was going to be extraordinarily expensive. And so we decided to cast our lot with the internet primarily as a, as a media tool. And so we did that. And so the sta third stage I recall is the spreading laboratory. So we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God and all things for the joy of all peoples. That's, that's part of our, one of our governing statements. And, uh, and so we developed what I call a spreading laboratory. We're trying all sorts of things besides the internet, so which was became the cornerstone of our outreach. But we were we had a creative media department that was using uh, both audio and video stuff, doing some real creative things there. We were hosting more events, regional events as well as larger national events. We developed an an international outreach department where we were beginning to, to be more proactive and trying to get things translated into other languages. Um, by that time, we also had Children Desiring God, which is developing children's curricula for Sunday school and things like that. And so it was quite a dynamic time. And that ran from roughly, you know, 2004, I would say, till toward the right, 2010, this laboratory. We, we experimented with a lot of things. And we realized um, over the course of the, that trial and error period that really the thing we need to do, what we're best at doing, is making Piper available free on the web. 
And so now, in stage four, we're at now, I would just call ourselves a, a web ministry. We are a web-centered ministry and use it almost exclusively as a tool uh, for the gospel. Now, all that's, now that's much clearer in retrospect than it was during the transitions. We were processing it all, and, and some of those transitions, especially in the latter years, as we had to shrink operations, were more painful. But uh, looking back, I can see it more clearly, and it was the right thing. One of the things I was thinking about, John, when I, I thought about your story and, and even some of the conversations that you and I have had in the past is that most of your adult ministry has been spent really serving the vision of another person. I mean, I think about Desiring God and your relationship with John Piper. I think about the local church. You're a pastor of worship there. Um, I, I've been both a, a lead guy casting vision and also the guy serving another person's vision and both of them have their blessings and both of them have their challenges. Has it been hard for you to be a, a second man of sorts? Um, no, I wouldn't say it was, it's been hard. Uh, working with John Piper and working with Rick Amash at Sovereign Grace Church, where I attend church and am now uh, part of the pastoral staff bivocationally. Um, it, it's been wonderful, and and uh, and I, as I was thinking about that question, there's there's a few reasons why I think it's gone so well. One is I, temperamentally, I, I work well in collaboration on ideas and strategy, so that, that's it's, it's been very helpful. Uh, theologically and philosophically uh, with both these men uh, we're headed in the same direction so it's just a, been a joy to travel in that direction together um, my, my giftings have complemented John's giftings and Rick's giftings enough so that there really hasn't been a whole lot of treading on each other both John and Rick are, are very humble guys uh, so it's not been hard, in a sense, to be under them because they, 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 they give me the sense of being beside them. Um, the other thing, too, is, uh, is both John and Rick would be pretty hands-off kind of leaders. So I, I, I just have had remarkable freedom to be creative in these different spheres um, I think about John in particular. I mean, there, for, for many of these 20 years, you know, John was, his, his job was as pastor of, of Bethlehem. And so John just trusted me with, with desiring God by and large. I kind of I ran with this on a day-to-day -day basis. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't here. And so his leadership, though certainly formative and, and important, I mean, I was there all the time running the staff and and things so it didn't necessarily feel all the time like a second man though you know certainly certainly I was but uh, from neither one of these men have I ever felt constricted and so I think you I know think what, at this um, I think it would have been much harder for me if I'd been working under under more controlling personalities one of the things I've noticed John is that there's a, there's an impulse among men who are emerging into ministry that uh, that seems to tell them that they've got to be a lead guy and that if they're not a lead guy you know they're not fulfilling their potential or falling short of something that God really wants for them and uh, and yet you know one of the things you're talking about is just being second 
and really satisfied in that role. So what would you say to our, our listeners who wonder whether they may be better suited for a, a second seat, but feel guilty for not wanting to lead? How, how would you counsel them if someone was sitting across from your desk? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, so, so I guess I'll, I'll answer the question um, assuming that I'm addressing people that are pretty sure that they're more support leaders or second, you know, as you call them, second men or support leaders. Um, if there's a sense of, of feeling guilty, in other words, in other words, I'm assuming that what you what you mean there is that is that you feel guilty because you know if you if you're a leader worth his salt, you have, you should be pushing, you know, to be the the alpha dog or, or whatever. You should be pushing to to lead lead the whole thing. Yeah, the lead lead guys get all the press. Yeah, right. And so what I'd say is, those feelings of guilt are not coming from Jesus. They're they're likely coming from embracing the world's value system that we, we, we just sort of absorb by living in the world. Um, you know, social status is, is so huge in the world and uh, it's always been that way. Competition is really fierce out there. And so, you know, if you're the beta dog, you're inferior. And what we need to, what I would say to somebody sitting across my desk is don't, don't buy that. Don't buy that because that's not how Jesus talks. Uh, the only thing that Jesus really wants us to compete for in the church is showing honor to one another, outdo one another in showing honor, it says in Romans 12.10. So, so don't buy that value system. Uh, the second thing I'd say would be is Jesus designed you to be you. There, there isn't anything second class or or, or junior varsity-ish about being a support leader. I mean, if, if Jesus gives us gifts at all to serve, it is a high calling, no, no, matter, no matter where it is that we're called to serve. And, and there has got to be people who fill all the different places within the church. And so it isn't the top guy who gets all the press in the, in the kingdom. That's not, how, at least that's not how God sees it. So he designs us to be to be ourselves, and if we're designed that way, he would want. He wants us to serve with joy. A third thing I would tell them is, God rewards faithfulness, not status. That's what God is mainly concerned about. So we're, I don't think we are ever to equate our status, our status as leaders, or where we are in the pecking order with God's favor. And the reason I say that is because because we never, we never know or we often don't know God's purposes in putting people in certain positions of leadership until far down the road. And God can have completely different reasons for somebody to be in a, in a leadership position than we think. And so we should never assume too much of our own status and other people's status. I think what God really wants for us is to do it, what he gives our hands to do, do it with all our might and Trust him. You know, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he may exalt you at the proper time. So that's, God knows better than we do how, how best we can serve his church. He's going to open the right door 
at the right time. Yeah, and it seems like as as leaders, we have to be very diligent and very intentional to make sure that those men that are filling those support roles are are honored in a way that's appropriate and biblical. I, I think about what you said earlier about out, outdoing one another and showing honor. And uh, it, it does seem like the <laughs> the system is rigged to give honor to the guy who's who's out front and preaching the most. Uh, but churches won't run on that alone, and they certainly won't won't be God lovers and 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 passionate about Scripture if if that's the only thing driving driving the whole program. And so, you know, whoever's leading has to be diligent at, at seeking to build a culture where other men around him are are being portrayed and spotlighted for their gifts and their effectiveness and the fruit and he's got to be one of their biggest cheerleaders so that what emerges in the church is this is this culture of honor that goes in all directions and, and including toward the people so it's not just a leader thing that's right you know jesus does that i think because i i think that uh the, the heroes that a, that a support leader can look to biblically, I mean, there's more than this, but you got John the Baptist in the New Testament. You got Jonathan, Saul's son, in the Old Testament. And, and, and listen to the way Jesus commends John the Baptist. He says, he says that, there has, that John was, um, no one greater was born of women than John, who's typified by this, this amazing sentence, he, Jesus, he must increase, and I must decrease. I mean, just, and Jesus honors John amazingly. He commends it, commends that character quality in him. And so, um, yeah, I just, those are, those are men who I look to. You know, when I, when I think about what models do I have to serve well, Jonathan is, is um, of course, that's actually my name, but his that character is remarkable. He's remarkable because he joyfully st- steps aside from the throne of Israel to let David have it because he trusts God. He trusts God and he delights in God's will and therefore he delights in David and he's going to do everything he can to support David. And David loved him. David loved him mm-hmm. like himself. John, I'm going to shift gears on you here because this is the Am I Called podcast, of course. And one of the things that I like to do on the podcast when I'm doing an interview is just to have a guy share his story of being called by God into the role that he serves in. And so you are a pastor of worship. Why don't you tell us about your your call to pastoral ministry? How did it how did it start? How did it gain momentum? So, um, in my early 20s, uh, I began to discern this draw toward worship leading. I had I got some, some native musical gifting, and, um, and when I would lead worship in small contexts, what would begin to happen is, is people were affected by that. Some, whatever it was in the way that I led, uh, people would be affected and so began to grow in that gifting actually led in smaller contexts um, you know for about 
about a decade, and then in my early 30s. Now, just a question, were, were you perceptive to them being affected, or was that something that other people were pointing out to you, or was it a combination of both? Yeah, I'd say it was a combination of both. I mean, people would, pe- the re- one of the reasons I knew that is people would be expressing that to me, both people who were affected and others who observed. Um, and so, yeah, it was a combination of both. Things happen when you preach. You didn't necessarily script, and, uh, and you recognize those as particular giftings, and that, that would happen when I would lead worship, and it would be confirmed by, by others. So, so that, yeah, that, that began to happen, and I would lead. I, I led in gradually larger contexts, um, not dramatically, but gradually. And um, it was in my early 30s when I, you know, Desiring God was you know, in full swing, and um, Rick Gamash was actually worked for me. He worked for me at Desiring God for a number of years. And uh, then he took this this church, this local church that uh, is kind of a sister church of Bethlehem, and became the preaching pastor. And when he, during his process of being called, I began to feel a, a deep sense of it was a subjective stir, but it was this deep draw to go with him. Felt like you know, I think I'm supposed to lead worship. That was kind of the, that's I'm describing the impression that I had lead worship with Rick. And so that, I went through a, a discernment process with Rick with other leaders, with John Piper, of course, and and uh, a number of cooperating circumstantial and subjective things ended up giving us a, a clear sense of, yes, Pam, so, I should go. So it didn't, it didn't start as some kind of distinct call to ministry, but more a uh, discernible opportunity to serve in a church plant. Yeah, yeah. I... Um, I had been dreaming about uh, leading worship. I wasn't sure. I, I was dreaming about doing it vocationally, even you know, possibly as a as a as a as a pastor, getting going on, and getting further equipping. It was you know, it, about two years before this, I was getting John Piper's uh, feedback on laying it out before him, saying, "John, what do you think I should do? Here's my stirrings." You know, and he was trying to help me think this through and whether I should go to a seminary, you know, leave Design God, go to seminary, do whatever. Um, that ended up not being the course. Uh, but, it, but I wasn't sure if I, if I was, if it was pastoral. It took me quite a while to figure that out. Is this a, is this a, is this a, oh, like a, like a pastoral position? Um, but John, some, what, what made you decide not to go to seminary? Talk, talk for a moment about that. Yeah. Um, a lot of that was driven by, well, it was driven by circumstance, Desiring God was growing. It was growing fast and it was intense. I, I And my family was growing at the same time. So Pam and I were starting to have children. Um, and uh, and my capacity for going to, to, to seminary during that time just uh, was was too small. I, I wasn't able to, to swing it. And so, um, and I wasn't sure enough about the role of seminary play. I didn't. I wasn't. Didn't sense a, a call to preach as much. I felt if I was going to serve in any capacity, it would be in an area of worship, along with uh, some pastoral counseling uh, gifts that I also have. And so, you know, I was beginning to think, well, if I'm going to go in the pastoral route, maybe I need to get equipped in counseling and and kind of be ready to do both. So I, I really was beginning to dream that way for a couple of years before this opportunity came, and then when Rick planted this church or sort of replanted it, um, he and I began to dream and... Yeah, I, lo- I, love the, 
I believe in the importance of seminary for, for some people, but I, I love the fact that the guy who leads one of the most theologically driven organizations in the land uh, did not have that as part of his package. That's just one of the ironies. I, I still don't know exactly how that happened. Go ahead, please. <laughs> oh, you want me to run with that? Oh. <laughs> no, no, I mean, okay, we'll continue on with your story because I interrupted you on the seminary part. Yeah, okay, so... so um, so I started, you know, I went through this process of discernment and it seemed like there was green lights and we went before the church and this new church, this called, it was called Grace Church, it's now called Sovereign Grace Church. And, um, and the, the door just opened. The door just opened to begin to lead. And uh, again, I mean, it was a volunteer. It was, it was not a paid position, but it was a volunteer position. I was an elder. Um, became an elder and started leading the worship ministry of the church. So it, it, I, I look back and say that it gained momentum gradually over time, about, about a decade for me, from, from the time that I started feeling a discernment that I wanted to, to, to grow in this area to the time that I began to serve a church. And it, and it emerged as a, as a church, like serve within the church, serve on, at, at an elder level in a church. It took a, a number of years to, to do that. John, I, you know, when you think about ministry and you think about what, where you are and what you're doing, what you want to do in the future, um, I used to think a lot about the question of, of where I wanted to be. You know, where do I want to be in three years? Where do I want to be in five years? What God, what's God saying here? And I, yeah, I could almost dizzy myself with the question. And, uh, you know, the good part of that is it helps us to think intentionally and to pray specifically. Uh, the bad part is that we can become distracted and engage even in presumption. How do you think about where you want to be and, and what you want to do in the future. What does it look like to reflect on that in a careful, wise, and biblical way? Yeah, that is a, that is a great question. And um, I think it's hard. I'll, I'll describe the way it works for me because I, I recognize that what God does is he, he generally works with us according to the gifts and temperament constitution that that we have, you know, and so with with one person who is a very maybe gifted planner, highly organized as it relates to strategy and plotting things out, God probably honors that and and uh, and and uses that. And so somebody can write, well, here's how you do it, and they they do it the way they do it. But it, it never worked that way for me. I was never very good at being able to plot out ten years ahead where I was going to be, and I would have been completely wrong. Um, almost every single time. <laughs> and so um, the way it worked for me is that I sensed, I, when I was going through, it took, it took me a while to get through my undergraduate studies um, because I was seeking to discern whether I was supposed to go on the mission field or not. So I, I started out that way. I, I went, after high school, I took some time off Felt like I wasn't really ready to invest in college yet because I, you know, I needed to pay my own way, and I wasn't sure where I was going to go, and I wasn't going to waste time experimenting. And so I, I did some short-term missionary stuff um, during that time, and uh, and then 
I still wasn't sure if, if I was called to missions, but I thought I might be called to missions. So I began down that, that road. Pam and I got married during that period of time. Um, and then uh, about partway through my, my undergraduate degree is when I started attending Bethlehem. And a whole different world opened up for me just theologically and, and, uh, and, I, and, and I began to think, we're still kind of thinking about missions as a, as a trajectory, but it wasn't clear. I wasn't sure if that was the right direction. I was having stirrings uh, during those, those years that, I, that now I see, when I look back, they were stirrings toward a call that I couldn't even define yet. Desiring God wasn't even on the horizon. But they were, I was, I was sensing a stirring in that way. And so what, what I ended up doing is I, I looked ahead and said, well, I think we might be on the mission field. Um, I'm gonna start moving in that direction, but I'm not, I'm not sure. And I would go and I went down and I would go through the doors that God opened. And I was, then, it would, then it would change. And that's what happened. So, so the, we were walking down, the, down this path and I got this phone call one day and it was from Noelle Piper and she wanted to know if Pam and I wanted to, to rent the basement apartment in the Piper's home. And when that happened, I recognized the beginning of a call, though I couldn't even articulate it. Like, some, there's something here. And, uh, and we followed that. We moved into the Pipers. That's really the, you know, part of the beginnings of Desiring God is we became friends. We got to know each other real well. And, um, and at the end of those two years, John needed a, an assistant. That was not my vocational direction. I, I, I was getting, you know, I was in the latter part of my twenties, and this position, this called ministry assistant, was going to be this cross between an administrative assistant and a spokesman, and not really your your your, your vocational move in your latter twenties. But I, it was irresistible. That's the best way I can describe it. Like I, th I think I'm supposed to do this, and for some reason, John said yes, and uh, and what happened was. Desiring God, and so, hmm. um, so, so my my path has been, been you know, you, you have this sort of general direction, you begin to take the next steps, and you find yourself steered, and I don't know how much of that is is the way I'm wired, and God honors that, or how much of that is generally applicable. Well, what I appreciate about it is that it seems like in every season, your your heart was poised to move towards service. And so rather than running at your desire, running at your ambition, uh, or running at some role, you were just running towards service. Yeah. And in running in that direction, you discovered a call. And I think that's a really important point uh, because so often, particularly for young guys, they, they think that uh, what they have to do is they have to identify their call in a role and run as quickly as they can toward it and get there at, at, at any cost. And. And in reality, what we have in Scripture is this, is this call to love the Savior and call to serve God. And uh, oftentimes that looks just like your journey, where these doors are opening, and actually the role or the service seems entirely counterintuitive because it doesn't map on to all of your strengths, but what it is, at least in that moment, is an opportunity to serve. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you know, now, now being in my late 40s, looking back, you know, if I were to be, be uh, counseling sometimes to do, a younger guy um, who's eager, you know, you want to move toward that role, you want to run, here, here's what I want to do, and I want to run toward this, this role. Um, the way I would counsel them is to say, you know, when, you're, when we're young, we, we have this tendency to want to take on um, more leadership than we should. We think we can, and we want to grab it, you know, go after it. Uh, be ambitious, and, and you know, I love what you say in your book, there's nothing wrong with ambition per se. Um, we gotta be careful. But when we're young, we tend to want more leadership than we ought to have, and than we're ready for. And when we're older, and we've had a chance to see the price of leadership, because there is a price, um, it's, it's hard, and it can be costly on, on a number of different levels. And then when you're older, you're down the road a ways, you're a lot more aware of your own weaknesses and frailties. So then, when you're older, you end up having more leadership than you think you want to have. Um, but probably at that point you're in the in the better place. So I I would counsel guys to uh, be patient with God. He knows what he's doing in the leadership development process, and a lot of the disappointments and stutterings and the and the false starts are part of of a humbling process that he takes as he refines the call and gets us ready to actually take on leadership with the kind of costs that it's going to involve. That's that's good pastoral counsel there, John. Listen, we're going to move to wrap up, but before we do, why don't you tell us something interesting or maybe surprising about John Piper that you learned along the way? Yeah, um, John is, uh, John, if you've listened to John much, he's, he's so transparent that you, you get a sense for what his family's like, uh, you know, what his marriage's like, what it's like being a pastor, what it's what he's like, what his strengths and weaknesses are. Um, like I said, there, there, a couple things came to mind um, to share this. One is one is uh, maybe a little funnier. Um, you know, John, <clears throat> as all it seems like all talented leaders, high-powered leaders. You know, John has got a strong leadership gifting, and you can tell when you hear him preach. Um, and it's a it's a theological leadership primarily. John wouldn't would John wouldn't say that his greatest giftings are certainly administrative giftings or, or structural giftings. Uh, you know, putting systems into place. He he works at it. He can do it if needed to. But that's not the greatest area of his giftings or or discernments. Um, which is why he's really happy to let people run with you know take take DG and run John and you know take Bethlehem and run staff um, but uh, he's he's got um, what I would say he's he's eccentric in the right places he's he's uh, he, he loves to shop for clothes at savers John doesn't have any fashion I shouldn't say he doesn't have a fashion sense I think he just ignores it he just ignores it um, he loves he, he lives just like a, an average person. You know, most people would be surprised at when they see the house that he lives in. And, and, uh, and so John, John is, uh, one, of the, one of the memories that I have from living with him is, is 
is Dinky Town Pizza Hut. Love Pizza Hut. He'd rave about Pizza Hut because they had this, and what he loved about it was was they had these deals back then where you buy you buy this mug and it's like endless endless uh, amounts of pop. Every time you bring in the mug, you can fill it up free with pop. And so he would he'd, he'd bring that and he'd get a personal pan pizza, which at that time I think was like a buck ninety nine or something like that. And he loved being able to buy dinner for, dinner for two for you and Noel for five bucks. He just thought that was awesome. Um, the other thing that's surprising to me as I look back, it didn't seem surprising at the time, and, and maybe this is redundant from what I've already said, but I, I'm surprised that he hired me. <laughs> it just am, when I look back. Uh, at the time, it, it seemed, you know, it's great. Um, it seems like the right next step. But here I, here I was. I was 27, getting close to 28. I was married, and I came up to him and said, "I want to, I want to, I want this job that you're that you're that you just created this 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 ministry assistant job." And why he didn't tell me at that point, John, you're married, you're 28, you haven't gone to seminary, um, get on with your life. You know, I, he, why he didn't say that? I don't I don't know. Um, why he took a, a cultural studies major, anthropology major, with no theological degree, no business degree, no nothing like that, um, with just my friendship with him from, from two years of living with him to, to commend me to him is, uh, is a sign and wonder. I, I look back and say, you know, God really does choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Uh, John had unusual, gracious, discernment uh, because I would you know I would have been an unlikely person to start desiring God so well it would it would appear as if the the last two decades has has certainly vindicated the wisdom of John Piper yeah that's <laughs> amazing hey I really appreciate you taking the time to do this buddy it's, it's a joy I appreciate your asking I hope it was helpful I think it was helpful and I, I look forward to getting an opportunity to sit down with you sometime. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.